With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Zing Singh, your host for Season 2 of the Women's Prize podcast, coming to you every fortnight throughout 2020, our year of reading women. From Zadie Smith's White Teeth to Naomi Alderman's The Power, we're spotlighting all 24 Women's Prize winning books during this podcast series, with eight book club episodes in which our guests discuss three of the brilliant winning novels from past years. And we want you to join the conversation. Go to hashtag readingwomen on Twitter and Instagram to share your thoughts as you read along and head to the Women's Prize website at womensprizeforfiction.co.uk to learn all about the 24 books, plus lots more to set you off on your reading journey. Welcome back for another episode of Reading Women. We are still on a coronavirus lockdown and recording this episode virtually so safely. So please excuse any minor sound hiccups with the quality of audio. And I am joined today by some wonderful guests. First up is Rhiannon Kostler, a columnist, feature writer and editor for The Guardian newspaper, and Liv Purvis, the author of The Insecure Girls Handbook. Liv and Rhiannon, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for reading the books as well. I mean, how did you find reading these three books, Rhiannon? It was really great to... Um revisit small island particularly because I read it um as a teenager um but also I think you know in lockdown it's been quite hard to concentrate hasn't it so um it was quite nice to escape into another time and place I found with all the books actually how did you find these books live yeah I agree I went when I read the lacuna I felt like it took me a while to get into, but once I was in, I was so like gobbled up by it and it provided such a lovely thing to come back to each day um, where I'd normally perhaps be scrolling on social media in the bath or something. It was nice to just, yeah, like you say, Rhiannon, like completely escape. I think that's one thing that a lot of people in the book club have talked about where it turns out if you are told to read three books, you will read them. And it's actually nice to have that commandment because someone's actually forcing you to do it and in actually getting forced you actually do read the books and you do end up really enjoying them that's definitely been my experience at least yeah and no, I, I feel as well because I was looking out for certain things I ended up doing like doing what I did when I was at school and kind of like folding pages and underlining things and it's been such a long time since I've done that and kind of fallen so deeply in with a book which was really refreshing especially at the moment where you kind of feel like your mind's often somewhere half elsewhere. So it's nice to feel really invested and almost looking out for certain kind of moments in those pages too. Well, perfect, because I want to hear which bits of the books you've underlined and dogged, <laughs> because I always find it really interesting to see which parts of the novel people are willing to vandalise their book for. <laughs> it speaks a lot about which bits moved you. Well, Today's book club theme is Changing Worlds. So to look at that subject in more detail, we have chosen winners from 2008, When I Lived in Modern Times by Linda Grant, the 2004 winner, Small Island by Andrea Levy, and The Lacuna by Barbara Kingsolver, which won in 2010. So with that in mind, do you kind of feel like the Changing Worlds theme applies to all three books? How much do you think it kind of showed up in the various books that you read? I think all of the novels are sort of concerned with the broad sweep of history 
and so it absolutely does apply you know although the characters themselves are kind of just a few people in in one place in one time they sort of get caught up in the events of history or the events of history affect them um and you know, I found that quite moving in, in some of the cases as well. I completely agree. And I think it was quite interesting, especially with Small Island revisiting it, because I read it as well as a teenager at GCSE. And I think revisiting it as an adult, um, especially in the time we're growing up in, it was quite interesting to see if there were elements and there were obviously like sadly elements that still felt reflective of today's world. Um which was really interesting as well. I think that's what I found with these three historical novels, right? Because I don't know about you guys, but I don't actually read that many historical books, or at least books that are based in kind of real historical moments. And it's always that kind of fine line where you want the author to be imaginative and bring to life that period. But at the same time, you're so aware that these moments are real and that the historical figures, well, some of them feature people who are very much real life people. You want it to be historically accurate as well. So how do you think that these three books kind of walk the line between historical accuracy and being creative and imaginative enough to capture you? I thought the lacuna did that really well. Um, I was almost kind of mind blown because even at the beginning, it says a lot of the happenings are based on real life but obviously the character Harrison Shepard is fictional and it was I I kind of completely forgot that he was a fictional character and then when I came back to it it's almost like when you watch a really good film that you end up googling like all the characters and like actresses and stuff and I ended up like googling Frida Kahlo and Lev Trotsky and then I was just like hang on why why is Harrison Shepard not in these pictures and it's it was done so well that I kind of forgot that these two fictional and real worlds collided anyway. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't like you. I don't read much historical fiction at all. It's um, it's not generally, you know, the kind of book that I pick up first and foremost. But um, I did, you know, I, I have always been fascinated by women artists and particularly Frida Kahlo. And despite having read quite a lot about her and her life. Um, I found the approach of the lacuna to her to be really, um, she really came alive in it, I felt. And that even the things that I maybe felt weren't reflective of who she really was as a person from what I'd read in terms of nonfiction, I felt she still was utterly convincing as a character herself within the realms of the novel. Mm -hmm. And... um, I think that's that's quite an achievement. Small Island obviously takes a different approach, but I I found the characters no less vivid, and you could tell that she'd Andrea Levy had absolutely meticulously researched the period that she was writing about. Um, you know, having had personal experience of her parents' stories as well, um, and I think it's wearing that research with a light touch, isn't it? You don't mm-hmm. want the book to feel as though it's um trumpeting the amount of 
historical underpinning that it has. And I, I felt that those books achieved that very much so. Well, we'll talk about Small Island and Lacuna in a second, but I'd like to start with the first book in this trilogy, which is When I Lived in Modern Times by Linda Grant. So this is the first book exploring the theme of changing worlds, and it won the prize 20 years ago in 2000. And it follows the adventures of our heroine, Evelyn Sert, who is a hairdresser from Soho, who at the tender age of 20 leaves London for Palestine to eventually become an unwitting spy for the underground. Now, what did both of you make of this book? I've never really read something that takes place in this particular historical period um, of the years leading up to the formation of Israel. What did you two make of it? I, I thought it was really interesting. It taught me a lot in terms of as you say, the formation of Israel and, and the background to that. And um, also, again, I felt like it had a really vivid sense of place. And I, you know, having not read many novels that were set in Tel Aviv or in Israel, I found that a really great experience, you know, to be to be um, embedded in a new in a new country and in a new place like that. Um I felt in terms of the character, she was perhaps the least um, convincing to me. But I found I found the, certainly found the history and the politics very interesting. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think I found, yeah, although I didn't find her the most kind of yeah convincing, like you said, I found it was so interesting kind of following along with her kind of discovery of identity through all the different situations from being in London and kind of grappling with it to then being in the kibbutz and just not knowing where kind of there's that anon- like anonymous feel that people experience to then kind of the reinvention of herself um, and the different people she meets. I did find that really interesting, um, especially when she became a hairdresser at the end in Tel Aviv and her experiences with her British clients and the things that they would say. So I kind of felt that mirrored elements of Small Island. Um, but yeah, no, I found it really, really interesting and definitely kind of an education in many respects as well. What did you make of the character of Evelyn? Because, you know, she's 20 in the book, which is very, very young. And like you say, she does go through a bit of a reinvention of herself. Do you think she came across as a really believable 20 year old, at least for that time and period? I think in some ways, yeah, I mean, she was certainly braver than I was at 20. Um, (laughs) But then I suppose she was probably like, in many ways, I think she's had to grapple with identity more and all these different situations she's been faced with, um, which I suppose puts you in those situations. And one thing that she speaks about being brought up on politics, um, which I kind of think that is really reflective, because I think her whole life and existence is centered around politics so she's constantly having to grapple with that feeling of identity as well and what did you make of the description of palestine and tel aviv i don't know about you but reading stories now that are set anywhere but the uk during lockdown almost feels a bit like having a holiday in your brain yeah (laughs) yeah definitely absolutely yeah um i thought i thought the city was drawn really well actually i thought it was one of the strengths of the novel it had a very strong sense of place didn't it Tel Aviv was so colourful as well like I really like I felt really when she was there I felt really kind of like almost I was there as well I could really visually imagine you could almost feel it like the warmth of it and I just think the way it was described was so beautiful and vivid and what about the depiction of it 
being set in the 40s because I don't know how many kind of period novels you read, but I always find sometimes like with really, really well done novels like this one, you kind of get a sense of like history almost and place and time because it still feels contemporary, but at the same time, you're very much reading it and you're aware of the fact that it's set I mean, now, almost like a century ago. Yeah, I mean, that just blows blows the mind that it's almost a century ago, doesn't it? I think, I don't know, this book is, this book is such a product of its politics and of its history mm. that um, it felt very strongly rooted in its time to me, um, perhaps more so than the other two, actually, which... Um, I don't know how to explain. I suppose um, the other two almost seemed like more modern novels to me. Right. I guess, even mm. though they were obviously also set in the past. It's interesting because this is the oldest book that we've got on the list that we're discussing today. So I'm wondering if maybe that's a product of the fact that it was written and published in 2000, which, to be honest, feels like a century ago to me. Yeah, and I think maybe also the, you know, in terms of structure. I think the you know the lacuna is a is a much more experimental structure in terms of um how it's how how it's been constructed and you know the lacuna of the title is obviously implicit in the structure as well which is one of the things that I loved about it and I think equally with small island with all the different voices whilst um the Linda Grant is much more of a realist novel in the traditional type I think. No, I think that's definitely true. I think what's interesting with doing these kind of reading women episodes is that when you look at books chronologically, you start seeing that authors start being very much more playful and radical when it comes to whose voices are talking and, you know, how many voices get to be in a book. Yeah. And I think publishing is a lot more, um, a lot more open to more experimental writing these days as well. Um, Certainly, you know, we have a flourishing indie press scene, for instance, where that's definitely the case. And we're seeing more and more, more and more books that kind of take risks like that. No, I think that's definitely very true. And that's something you see in the selections for the Women's Prize winners as time goes on as well. Now, before we move on to the next book, I think it'll be great to hear from Polly Toynbee, who is a Guardian columnist, formerly the BBC social affairs editor, and she was a chair of the judging panel from 2000. So she tells us a little bit about why I Lived in Modern Times was picked that year as the winner. I think it's full of a complex irony. It's about seeing idealism and not quite being able to do it or the real world intruding all the time. And um, so it, it's not, in a sense, a political book. It's very much a book about growing up, could be any time, any place, but just happens to be set in a place that's so extraordinarily interesting and beautifully described. It was a very, very tight run between uh, Zadie Smith's white teeth and they were absolutely neck and neck and the judges had a terrible time deciding and we fought forwards and backwards over a long time and we would like to have had two prizes that year but since there was only one uh, we felt that the Linda Grant was more uh, fascinating in 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 the world it took us to, and more of an eye opener in a sense about something that's very been very rarely written about, certainly in in in, Eng- in English language literature.
Remember, you can join in that discussion by using the hashtag readingwomen. Now, our second book is Small Island by Andrea Levy. This novel won the prize back in 2004. Liv, do you mind giving us a quick rundown of the story? Yes, of course. Um, So the book is set in post-war Britain um, in 1948, and the story is told through the voices of four characters. So that's Hortense and Gilbert and then Queenie and Bernard. Um, And it tells the story of Hortense and Gilbert migrating from Jamaica and how they end up lodging with Queenie and Bernard and both of their, all of their experiences in this unusual period of bleakness and also discovery. How did you feel about reading the book again? Because did both of you do this book at school? Yes. I didn't do it at school, but my mum had it on her shelf and I read it while I was a teenager. Right. So what did the experience of rereading it as an adult compare to being a teenager? Oh, I just felt like I I understood it so much more, both the, you know, um, sexual relationships and dynamics now that I'm an adult, but also I think in the political climate we're in, how much it still resonates and how um, how current it still is. And um, I found it, I think, I I remember finding it moving at the time, but I found it particularly moving um, in light of everything that's happened with Windrush in the last couple of years and the last chapter particularly. I don't know if you agree, Liv, but I just, you know, I was in tears reading it. I just found it so moving. No, I completely agree. I think I didn't, I think when I read it as a teenager, I think because I was doing it as a, at a GCSE level, I think no matter what book you're reading, it can be as amazing a small island. But I think when you're given it at school, sometimes there's that reluctance to really get involved with it because you're kind of like, oh, okay, I have to read it. And there's that obligation. And although like I did reread it for this, I just loved it. And like you say, Rhiannon, I felt like it felt really, in some ways, really reflective of today's society, which is like mad um but also it was just really really interesting kind of revisiting the characters um and I read an interview with Angie Levy and she was saying that was quite interesting with Bernard she didn't want him to be like come across as evil but just really misguided and bigoted and I thought that was quite an interesting take because I read it and I just felt really angry um Mm -hmm. But it was it was just it was really refreshing going back to it. And like you say, the last chapter really moving. Um, But it just it was so nice because, yeah, like you say, you have such a bigger understanding of it. And obviously in the 10 years since I read it as a teenager to now, I have such a clearer understanding of Windrush and even of all of the topics that come up with that's racism or sexual like sexual relations and all of these things feel so much more like you can really understand what each character's talking about and you kind of sympathize like even great even more greatly I think. I think it's almost so sad that the things that are discussed in Small Island are still such a prevalent issue today. Yeah yeah that's I think that's what I find so sad about it and I felt like as a novel this time I read it as as highly political but it was highly political without being didactic. You know, it wasn't whacking you around the head and saying, look at the contribution uh, this generation made to the war effort and look at how this country has thanked them or not thanked them. It, 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 
it showed that without yeah. you feeling as though you were being lectured. And it was, I just felt as a novelist, it, it's a phenomenal achievement to be able to do that. Yeah, it was quite shocking. And I remember I wrote down one line because I read it and it was just as we went into lockdown. Um, and it's something Queenie says. And she says something like that National Health Service pulling them in um, about more people going to work for the National Health from overseas. And I was just like, it's the same things people are saying now, which is shocking because in that vast period of time between then and now, we're having the same conversations that are popping up and it just it's quite alarming really because you don't expect to almost resonate that much and you you hope that you pick it up and read it and think it felt more alien and mm. it didn't yeah I know which is in one ways you know a triumph for the author because she wrote this yeah. back in 2004 but in other ways it's a really sad condemnation of where we are as a society absolutely I mean like I said if you if you look at how mistreated the Windrush generation have been you know and and many of them who work for the NHS and you know have been dubbed low-skill workers by the government until this mm-hmm. crisis began it's just I think it gives you the perspective of of what it must have been like as well to come to a new place and to just face so much prejudice and racism mm-hmm. from the population and yeah. and nevertheless to continue contributing to that society to continue doing good you know in the face of much mistreatment and prejudice and I I think I think it's a book that everyone should read you know um, I I was glad to hear that it was on the school curriculum as long ago as when you're at school Liv no offense not saying you're really old (laughs) but like you know I hope that it still is on the curriculum um because it has important lessons for us all, doesn't it? Do you think it's easier for people to engage with issues that, you know, small island raises like racism and immigration and xenophobia if it's kind of in a book rather than a straight news story? I think when a novel is good, what a novel succeeds in doing is in teaching us something about human psychology and about transposing that onto fictional characters that seem real. And I think it can be difficult to glean the depths of human psychology from a news article, I guess. Whilst when you've spent time in a novel and you've sat with the characters and you've been, you know, subject to their innermost thoughts and their feelings and their motivations, I think it's a very sorry person indeed who has difficulty empathizing with that yeah I was I was gonna say the same I think it really not that you should have to be with someone and understand someone fully to fully empathize with them but I think when you've read a book like Small Island and you understand everything about someone from you know what brings them joy to make them upset to like you say their motivations I think it really paints a real picture and can't like you'd hope can make anyone empathize with those things that perhaps if you just see flashing up on the news perhaps you don't get the full story and it's I think especially with the news sometimes it can feel quite noisy and loud and I think with when you've sat with those characters for such a long time it's I don't know yeah it can really teach you something actually one of the things I wonder sometimes if 
is whether or not there could almost be a sequel to this that takes into account, you know, issues like the right wing press monstering immigrants, you know, what happened with the Windrush generation in real life. It's almost like you want these stories to continue being talked about, but through the through novels rather than, you know, through headlines, because it makes people kind of more engaged with it. And it makes people sit with these stories rather than just looking at them at the front of a newspaper and dismissing it. Oh, yeah, definitely. I hope someone's working on it right now. Um, I definitely thought that Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo was an amazing, like phenomenal portrait of black British womanhood. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm I'm sure there are like loads of um, younger novelists who are working on on their own interpretations of what life is like as a person of colour in Britain today and I'm really looking forward to reading them. And what about the characters? Did you have a favourite out of the characters and voices in the novel? It's tricky isn't it Liv? Yeah Mm. I mean I I I don't know I I I did I really like Gilbert I really like Gilbert um Oh, I think he's the one you warm to the most, yeah. with Gilbert. But I had a soft spot for Hortense as well because, you know, she kind of arrives as as quite a terrible snob, really. Yeah, she and does. Then by the end, she becomes. It's like she sees the light and she 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 learns some kind of humility, I think, and some and and you sort of follow her on that journey. And that's that's nice, you know. She has, she goes on a bit of a journey and and comes out a better person, I think. And you do sympathise with her as well, of course. Yeah, no, she's she's a really brilliant character. I think, yeah, like you say, I think Gilbert's probably the easiest to warm to, and like probably the kind of yeah, the warmest, the funniest, and the kind of person you think, oh, you make a really great mate. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> whereas I think, obviously, with characters like Bernard, you're just kind of just it's really hard to kind of sympathise with them in any way or really have that warmth that you get from someone like Gilbert. No, I think having a character in your books that someone would be happy to call a mate is definitely a recommendation of a good book. Oh yeah, love Gilbert. (laughs) Would follow him on Instagram. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is a perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Official announcement. Sunshine is coming our way. Celebrate the changing seasons and the sweet taste of spring with a Bailey's on ice alongside your favourite shortlisted book. Or if you'd prefer a vegan treat, try Bailey's Almond for the delicate taste of almond with a blend of real vanilla. Well, our final book for today's episode of Reading Women is The Lacuna by Barbara Kingsolver. So out of our three books, this was the most recent winner. It won the prize in 2010. Rhiannon, would you mind giving our listeners a quick summary of the book? Sure. So The Lacuna is set in Mexico in 1935, and it's about... Um, well, it starts off being about a young boy called Harrison Shepherd, who eventually grows up to become um, a famous author. And it's told in a kind of um, fragmented style slightly in that we, we first come to him through his diaries. 
and then it's interrupted by a note from an archivist and then you know we get a little bit more of the story but there are gaps in the story kind of lacunae as it were and um you're sort of you're sort of trying to patch together this this boy's life and he ends up spending time in the house of uh diego rivera and her his now much more famous wife but then relatively unknown uh the artist frida Kahlo, and um it chronicles their involvement with the exiled uh bolshevik leader lev trotsky so these are real historical characters um that he's observing, but he himself is a fictional character. And as Liv said earlier, it's a very, very clever blend of the two. What did you make of this book? Because it's quite, you know, like you say, it covers a lot of historical ground. And at the same time, it's done in quite a radical way. So you're never quite sure what scraps of information you're being fed and who exactly has the kind of power over what's being presented. Yeah, and I found that quite groundbreaking as a way of telling the story because, you know, as a reader, you're sort of wrong-footed all the time um, and you don't know what to believe, you don't know what to trust. And it's sort of multi-layered in a way that kind of weirdly reminded me of Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, even though they have nothing in common in terms of structure or subject matter. I felt that same kind of unreliable narrator stories retold by people who were there to other people. It had a similar kind of um, attitude to veracity, I felt, and an attitude to how you tell a story and how much you can trust the story that's being told. And what did you make about, you know, the developments later on in the book where he gets holed up before the House Committee on Un-American Activities? I always need to refer to that name because it's such a wordy mouthful and it sounds like something completely made up, but it was real. <laughs> what did you make of that kind of development in the book? I, I Towards the end, I kind of felt like, I mean, one thing I really noticed was like the, the press treatment of him. Um, and again, that felt like something kind of obviously how Small Island kind of feels reflective of parts of our society. I felt like that had elements of like the right wing press where it was just so kind of felt so almost exasperating where you're kind of reading it. And from everything you've read throughout the book, you're almost just like, what? This this literally makes no sense. And they mm-hmm. have a complete grip over everything that he does and says. Um, and even to the point where in the novels he's writing it's the way he's trying to tell them and the way it's questioned by the people around him and one thing that was said which I thought was really interesting I did try and write this down um was about cutting like their anchors to the past to make the writing more comfortable for the audience and I thought that Mm -hmm. was really interesting um especially because of how I think like we say with the media, I think people find it quite confronting sometimes to be made aware of what's going on. Um, and it was something that Violet Brown said to him about sometimes they need connections to the past to kind of create that empathy. And I was just like, yes, yes, Violet. <laughs> you go. And I think also, you know, the, it, the the hearing is told through a transcript and mm-hmm. that really kind of, you know, again, a different form. You know, you've got diaries, you've got notebooks, you've got articles, you've got letters, you've got transcripts. And it, that really served to kind of highlight, I guess it was kind of Kafkaesque, wasn't it? Just the sheer yeah. absurdity of the bureaucracy and the allegations and the politics of it all uh, really came across. And the sort of 
gulf between who this man was and what we saw of him as readers and how he was being portrayed. I think especially the fact that there are so many different forms this novel takes and the way it presents information to us. To me, it kind of was an argument for, you know, who's got the monopoly on the truth, really. Like, we think Mm -hmm. that we have an idea of this man, but, you know, everybody writing up these sources has their own kind of agenda, especially when you get to the transcript, for instance. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, I was kind of left by the end of the book thinking, do I know this man any better than, you know anybody else in this book or a reader who's also reading this book what did you guys think did you think that by the end of it you had a pretty clear idea of this of the protagonist it's sort of yes and no I I think there are obviously elements about him that are enigmatic and always will be because of the missing pieces in the story but without wanting to spoil the ending I think as well we're left with we're left with a question mark aren't we Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that reflects how we feel about the character too. Not only what ha- we don't actually end up knowing what happened to him, but we also don't really feel as though we could get a true handle on who he was and what he was, you know, what his motivations were. Did you like him by the end of it? Did you find him a likable character? I did. I think I felt like. I don't know, I found him a fascinating character. Like, sometimes I felt he was quite cold, but I did feel like, I, lo- I don't know, I, I enjoy, like, even at the beginning, I found the book, on like, quite hard to get into. But then towards the middle and the end, you appreciate why there's so much about him and those diary entries. And it's almost like it builds towards this character, which you do kind of really sympathize with and you feel like he just wants to well potentially just wants to like live quite a modest life writing um and I felt like I sympathize with him and even down to things like his sexuality and like his relationships with people that were constantly scrutinized and I didn't I found it quite interesting because there's yeah like question marks over things like that over his relationships and yeah like you say Rian like just very enigmatic which was kind of pulls you in but also kind of makes you feel like he's a bit cold because you're like I I don't really kind of ever get to fully know you I think in a way that is symbolic of how a lot of people who are gay or lesbian in the 20th century felt like they had to conduct their lives you know they had private lives and they had public lives and I felt that there was a real sadness in how that was portrayed that he wasn't able to fully be himself and and was kind of misjudged again and again. Um, I hadn't really thought about whether I liked him or not because I never really think about characters in terms of likability, but um, I certainly empathised with him and I felt the passages where he was a child, a bit like you, Liv, I found it hard to get into at first and I think that was because I found the writing as a child, the least convincing. I, I didn't fully believe that it was a, the writing of a child. Mm-hmm. Whilst when he'd grown up, I found that the character became a lot more convincing and, and sort of came alive to me, particularly, you know, when he starts uh, working in Diego and Frida's house. It's interesting because I feel like that moment is when the novel could have lost its authenticity because those two are such gigantic figures in art, well, Frida especially now, that, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a misstep uh, 
it could all come crashing down and you start questioning the believability of the novel. Do you even, you know, think that this is a realistic portrayal of Frida and Diego? You know, readers would come to this novel with all these preconceived ideas of who these people are. So what did you make of the inclusion of really big historical figures into uh, the lacuna? Did you think it was a good idea? Do you think it worked really well? I think we've got to bear in mind that it's only since the 1980s that people have really known much about Frida Kahlo at all. And really only in the last five years since people started putting her face on cushions and things. <laughs> yeah, um, that you know, she's become kind of commercialised and co-opted by the mainstream. You know, I mean, I think you'll both remember when Theresa May wore a bracelet that had her face on. And it's oh God, like, yeah. this is a woman who had an affair with Trotsky and a conservative <laughs> prime minister is wearing a bracelet with her face on, like the mind boggles. Um, <laughs> so I think in a way she gets away with it because most of the people reading the book wouldn't have known that much about the day-to-day lives of Frida and Diego in Mexico in the 1930s. Um, as someone who does know quite a lot about it because I've read her letters and, and, and things and I'm you know, I studied art history as well. I actually found that it was pretty convincing. I felt it portrayed their relationship, you know, very well in terms of, uh, you know, how much he worked and the various affairs and the dynamics that they had. I don't know. What did you think, Liv? Yeah, see, I was going to say, like, I like I don't know much about her at all, um, like beyond surface level. Um, so it's really interesting to your perspective, which is obviously someone who does know a lot about them, but I found it really convincing again, based on very little ex- like external knowledge, but I felt like you really got a feel for their relationship and their line of living situation. And even like her character and the way she softens and like her exterior I just thought it was so beautifully communicated and the thing is because I don't really know much about her like for all her personality it was really interesting to see a side like to, tr- to perhaps get an understanding of what she was like as a person and her personality and the way she communicated with other characters and obviously there's obviously like lots of room for you know discussion about how accurate that is but I think as someone who didn't know a lot it's nice hearing from you that it was relatively accurate and convincing. I mean, I think you can forgive the odd historical inaccuracy, can't you? If yeah. like the character herself is convincing and the way I think what's, what's great about the way she, she is in the novel is, is the way she communicates. Like you said, her dialogue, I thought reflected what I've read of the woman herself quite well. Yeah. And you got a sense of that kind of quite sparky, difficult personality um and passionate as well you know you really got that and I loved like even when I was reading it like I was reading it almost in an accent because of the way it was like written and I feel like I just was completely engrossed in the narrative between her and Harrison and just it felt really like yeah like electric and like you say like punchy and sparky and I just think it's always great to read um about a disabled character who isn't defined by their disability as well um you know because that's such an easy trap it seems to be for not very good writers to fall into and I think you know this writer did not fall into that trap which was great and to bring it back to the theme of changing worlds what do you think of the world that's depicted in the lacuna do you think it's one that is kind of foreign to us now or do you think there's still elements of it that we still see today I thought 
the depiction of the breakup of the protest camp mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C., I found that very evocative. Um, and obviously the police violence brought to mind police violence, which continues in America today um, in quite a real way, I thought. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, I think the novel, it's, it's set in a time and a place, but it has continued resonance, doesn't it? Well, I think that kind of concludes the section on the lacuna, which is, you know, a great book and I think definitely deserves a second read. And here is our final judge for today's Reading Women episode. This is writer and TV producer Daisy Goodwin, the chair of judges from 2010, on why Barbara Kingsolver's The Lacuna was crowned the winner. There are so many genres of historical novels, you know, Tudor historical novels, you know, there there are places, and what's so brilliant about this is that it takes things that you never would expect to find in a historical novel in a way. You know, the combination of the HUAC committee and Frida Kahlo and and Diego and and Leon Trotsky in one novel makes it very exciting, very rich, and um, it's a very sly novel. There are lots of jokes in it. Um, There's a really fantastic sexual tension at the heart of it in in, in the Mexico um, place which I thought was just was just brilliant I mean I loved all of that and I thought it was she she really unpacked that triangle in a way that I found utterly compelling I mean we had a really wonderful panel of judges um, and we I thought had a very balanced shortlist and obviously the two biggest guns were probably the the lacuna and wolf hall but i think there was a feeling around the room that when we went back to read all the books again that the lacuna was the one that really resonated for us all and i think you know wolf hall is a fantastic novel and hillary mantel is a genius but i think it's wonderful that we were able to give the prize to a novel that perhaps people wouldn't have come to and now it's getting the, it, it it's got it has the attention that it that it deserves in this country I just wanted to wrap up the episode by asking you guys how you felt about the theme of changing worlds. Do you think that was one book that spoke to that theme more strongly? I think when I lived in modern times in an element perhaps connected with that changing worlds theme really beautifully because of the idea of moving and becoming what Evelyn is like a new Jew and this new kind of city and experience. So I feel like that perhaps connected on that level but I feel like they all communicated it in different ways and they all had that kind of overall like thread running through them which was like a real longing for home and identity and the way the world was changing as they were navigating it. What about you Rhiannon? No I agree I mean you know all of these books are set against the broad sweep of history so in that sense they all encapsulate the theme of changing worlds but I think also the characters are making journeys you know all of the characters have experience of migration all of the protagonists I should say have experience of migration in this book and I think you know insofar as migration changes your world your personal world I think that small island best reflects that 
But they're all great books by brilliant writers. Did any of them change your opinion or perspective on anything? Or did it kind of, you know, educate you in ways you hadn't expected? I, um, I'm always grateful to read more about Israeli-Palestinian politics because um, it's such a uh, complex uh, <laughs> conflict and I think you can never really know enough. So mm-hmm. I was grateful to Linda Grant for that. Um, in terms of the other two, politically they didn't change my mind at all, but I think... Because I think, you know, the politics of them both were, were broadly aligned with my own. But I think mm-hmm. um, they enriched my politics. And I think that's always that's always great to have from a novel. No, I think in some cases they enraged me in the fact that I couldn't believe that things hadn't changed at all. Yeah, I felt the same way. And I <laughs> felt, you know, the, the, I felt the ending. You know, we've been we live in such jingoistic times at the moment. And the Second World War is evoked constantly especially in this now. kind of pseudo nationalistic way um and I just felt that the way small island ends on that Winston Churchill quote um was just it was a real gut punch wasn't it no, um it and I think made it made the point very very well which is that we owe a huge debt to migrants who have come here and who have you know helped the people in this country and and saved their lives you know and that's something that couldn't be more relevant today especially now at a time of coronavirus exactly exactly and I hope I really hope after all this is over that people will look at you know are so-called low-skilled workers with new eyes. It's funny to discuss this theme right now because in many ways it feels like we are living through a changing world. Yeah. Absolutely. And I don't think, I don't know about you guys, but I haven't really got my head around that yet, um, that we're living through history right now. Um, So perhaps there'll be historical novels. I'm sure there will be historical novels set in this time. Liv, what did you think about the books? Did any of them change your opinion on anything? Yeah, like much like Rhiannon said, I feel like they were more an education than a kind of an opinion changer, especially with Small Island and the Lacuna, because like you say, it very much aligned with the things I feel anyway. Um, but I feel like they I, there were just things I took out of it that perhaps as well as the main themes of a changing world and identity, I feel like there were other things I was I was like writing down and scribbling down, especially from the lacuna. There were a couple of quotes I was like, that's brilliant. Um, so I feel like there were lots of other small wisdoms in there, just peppered throughout that I kept thinking, that's really beautiful and poignant and it seems so secondary to the whole overall plot, but it still feels really profound. And there were lots mm. of moments of that, which I thought was really beautiful that, you know, were just very much blended into this whole bigger narrative but equally stood alone they were really poignant Hmm. was there a book that you both remember I feel like I mean I I always have remembered Small Island so I feel like that's Mm -hmm. that goes without saying but I feel like the lacuna because I I think it challenged me and sometimes I feel with reading I sometimes feel like I'm not great articulating things or my taste in novels or isn't like highbrow enough and I think it was something that I picked up and I, typically I perhaps might not have picked up 
um, just because I think I might have felt like I wasn't qualified to read or not intelligent enough or it was too chunky or something completely ridiculous. But I really loved how it just stimulated me the whole way through. And it surprised me because I think at the beginning I was quite slow to get into it. But maybe that was probably more me being like, oh, no, I don't think this is for you. Like you're best with your chiclet or whatever. And then actually really falling in love with it and kind of discovering more and more um, and actually learning so much about the characters and so many different things. I think that was the book that I was like, wow, I'm really, yeah, I'm blown away by this. What about you, Rhiannon? Was there a book that would stay with you? Um, Well, I agree with Liv. I think, you know, as a literary achievement, the lacuna is the one that really stands out for me as being quite groundbreaking and, you know, just a real undertaking as a reader, as you say. I mean, it's 670 pages. It's, um, you know, it is quite an undertaking and there is a real sense of... um, sort of achievement when you finish it um and and you know it feels worth it as well it feels it feels completely worth it but I think small island is the one that will stay with me just because of the emotion of it and Mm. I don't know if that's because of the emotional place that I'm in right now as well um like you said we're we're living in a very strange time but I felt the characters very deeply and I was very profoundly moved by the end. I'm Zing Singh, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Now, you definitely want to head over to our website to find out more about the Reading Women Challenge, get exclusive video and audio content, and check out the hashtag ReadingWomen on Instagram and Twitter to join in the conversation around the 24 brilliant past winners of the Women's Prize for Fiction. Now, you can get hold of all the books you've talked about in today's episode and all of the Women's Prize winning novels we've discussed so far on the podcast by going to waterstones.com. We even have a very special discount for you. You can enter the code WPF25 at checkout to get 25% off each of the winning books. Please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review this podcast. It really helps spread the word about all the female talent you've heard about today. Thank you very much for listening and see you next time. Listener.